0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Teamcast. I am Dr. Preston Klein, Director of Research and Education at the Mission Critical Team Institute. The Teamcast is a show where my colleagues, Goldman Reese, Claire Murphy, Harry Moffitt, and myself, along with our guests, discuss all things mission critical teams. Mission critical teams are teams of four to twelve people who are indigenously trained and educated and who solve rapidly emerging complex adaptive problem sets. MCTs work in immersive environments of 300 seconds or less, where the consequence of failure is death or catastrophic loss. Regardless of whether you want a mission-critical team or not, we aim to bring you the broadest range of topics and guests as possible. Thanks for joining us, and I hope you enjoy the TeamCast. Hi, welcome to the TeamCast. My name is Dr. Preston Klein, and I'm joined today by Chris Warner, a famous mountaineer, a legendary mountaineer now, who was just completed a few months ago as the second American to complete all 14 of 8,000-meter 8, 8, peaks and has been somebody I've known since I was about 22 years of age in which I first became a wilderness guide. He was one of my first instructors. And in the years, as you'll see during this conversation, is somebody who our lives have intersected over the years and decades, many different times in many different places on many different continents. And so today We're going to have a continuation of a conversation we've been having for 30 years, which is how do people learn to navigate uncertainty? How do the teams operating at the most edge of things, like mountaineering, like the worlds that you all work in, how do we think about teams, about partnerships, about navigating uncertainty? And so with that, I'd like to welcome Chris Warner to the Teamcast. Thanks,
1: Preston. It's an honor to be here, especially for two guys who have more gray in their hair than we could have ever imagined.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, the, the one thing I wanted to say to you is both you and I, I remember us first meeting because we met in the woods of New Jersey at a place called Project Use, founded by a guy named Phil Costello, who basically came up with a program to work with kids that nobody else wanted in a place nobody else wanted to be, which was New Jersey. And you and I had been juvenile delinquents. And so right away, we're like, oh, yeah, we, we see the look in each other's eyes. And so I want to sort of ask you about that. Do you think that there is strength in being a juvenile delinquent in that young age to what you do now? Oh, 100%.
1: It's funny because I've also had a lot of success in business, and there was a statistic, I don't know how they got this statistic, that 21% of self-made millionaires at one time sold dope. So I think we, we learn a lot from our transformational experiences. And I was so successful actually as a 15 year older that I was recommended by my parole officer to go on a project use course. And so the first time I'd ever spent any time in the outdoors and in an organized thing, first time I ever went rock climbing, first time I ever used a map or compass was as a student on that project use course. Okay. And it was literally changed my my life. I had no idea that this world existed, you know, this outdoor world and you could be an outdoor guide. And I vowed on that course, that I was going to spend the rest of my life taking people into the wilderness to have life-enriching experiences.
0: Yeah, my judge and social worker sent me to Special Olympics. Uh, and <laughs> yeah. then, so very, uh, by by the way, as a, as a worker, not as a participant, but that, you know, that's what got me into the whole thing. And then later, the Ronald McDonald House camp for kids with cancer, and then Project Use. And so the thing I want to sort of just start with, because we're going to sort of go deep fast, as is our tradition. mm mm-hmm. The thing about taking people into the wilderness, and we talk a lot about this in MCTI, right? Wilderness is a metaphor for uncertainty, right? And that could be surgery, that could be combat, that could be a bunch of other things. When you think about your role, taking people into the wilderness, what do you think that role in a modern society, why it's so important? Okay.
1: I am a huge believer in setting. So just as if you're going to have any kind of a great novel, you know, you have a, a character that has character development, you have setting, you know, you have these different types of conflicts that come in. I have learned that a setting which is romantic and unique to the person is going to... Uh, allow for more impact. And included with setting, though, is things like uniforms. And you're really leading people towards this role-playing experience that's going to allow them to be a different version of themselves. So the fact that we're putting on a backpack, which maybe they've never put on before, that they're using a map and a compass, tools they've never used before, you know, that we might have them in, a, you know, in rock climbing harnesses, etc. All of those things Combined to put the person in this learning environment that is exotic to them. And once they get caught up in the romanticism of this exotic setting and this exotic tools and this exotic outfit, you know, like the backpack is the cape, you know, yeah. the, uh, and by doing that, then people are willing, like I said, willing to become or at least play with being a different version of themselves. And us as guides, if yeah. we play the mentor role, I mean, really it's... You know, this is the hero's journey. Yeah. And if we play the mentor role, if we're the, you know, the guide by the side, not the sage on the stage, we we can subtly write the script that they're going to play out in a way that's going to lead them to growth. And the biggest tool that we use For this growth, of course, is conflict. So the wilderness is just filled with opportunities for conflict. You know, man versus nature, man versus himself, man versus other men. So you're just using the same tool that's been used forever. You know, whether it was Shakespeare or whomever to 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 create a story that this person is going to then grow within.
0: What I think it's interesting when I reflect back on the many different places that you and I have been, whether it be New Jersey or Africa or wherever. There are these moments, and and it's really man against himself or woman against herself, where people arrive with these own internal monologues about that they're not smart enough or talented enough or brave enough or whatever. And we don't really give them the opportunity to dwell on that because we create this momentum, right? We create this momentum and all this stuff where we're like, yeah, no, you are, and we're just going to assume that and keep moving. We don't have time for you to sort of think about the fact that you're less than.
1: Oh, but that's part of the whole beauty of the whole experience. Yeah. And I'm sure it's the same thing with basic training. I mean, you have to throw them into the deep end of the pool. The water has to be moving extremely fast. So there's less time to dwell on woe is me yeah. and more on, you know, like, what is it going to take? Like, I always used to say, especially guiding uh, on big peaks with crevasses and yep. avalanche danger and stuff. I used to say, fear focuses the mind you, you need a little bit of uncomfortability, a little bit of stress to get people to really concentrate on the challenge that's ahead of them. Absolutely.
0: So what I'm going to take you back. So you're this wilderness guide. I meet you. We're both having just like we found our tribe. We found the coolest thing ever. And then it occurs to you to found a climbing company. Like, how's, does that happen? Well,
1: I, you know, as, as I said earlier, I was extremely entrepreneurial. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. and I also was never the best at working for other people, although I worked for lots of other people. I always, I had such high expectations. Like I'm a true believer in the old Knowles saying, you know, have high expectations of your students, higher expectations of your assistant instructors, and the highest expectation of yourself. Yeah. So I always had extremely high expectations. I always wanted to be part of the premium, whatever it was, the premium brand. And so eventually I realized that I had no choice but to create my own company and, you know, try to turn it into as premium of a brand as it possibly could be. And then surround myself with people who also had that same desire, that wanted to work for something, someplace that was more special than where they had worked before.
0: Yeah. So when we talk about, in MCTI. We talk about teamwork, which is a traditional concept. And then Amy Edmondson's work on teaming, which is this idea of bringing together a group of people who aren't just being good at being teamwork, like team members, but also are engaged in creating and maintaining teams, right? And and especially with people maybe you haven't met before. And when you think about the teams in the wilderness and then the teams in business, what were the strengths or what were the weaknesses that come with those two different kinds of environments or contexts?
1: Oh, I mean, that's a great question. I think that the biggest, if you're talking about literally the difference between the wilderness versus business world, yeah. I think that the wilderness world, well, we have to first talk about time frame when we're talking about this, right? Because yeah. a, a wilderness team is generally together for a finite period of time. That's right. And it's usually the same people who start the trip and the trip. Yeah. Whereas in the business world, because I had at one point a thousand employees at one time working yeah. for me. So yeah. over that course of 28 plus years, people came and went and the group constantly was changing in size and changing in the goals that it was oriented towards, et cetera. So I think that's really critical in thinking of that. Thinking outside of my own business, though, what I see, because I've worked with hundreds of or thousands of CEOs and hundreds of different companies, I think that businesses don't hold themselves to a very high standard. In our world, right, if I'm going to say that I'm in the MCTI world as well, yeah. Yeah. we we hold ourselves to an extremely high standard. Yeah. And it's a lot has to do with consequence. You know, if you look at bigger companies, profits solve problems. And so in a lot of really big companies, especially Fortune 500 companies, there is problems that have been existing there for decades and decades and decades that nobody will need to address because they have enough profit to to kind of gloss over those problems. And when you look at entrepreneurial companies, you know, startups, et cetera, especially when they're bootstrapped, Mm -hmm. they they can't put up with those problems. They have to address them. And so they have a greater opportunity to morph, you know, evolve quickly than these larger companies do. And when I go into... Companies, the ones that I've learned to like the most are the A plus companies because they're desperate to get one to, to you know one tenth of one percent better. Yeah. When you go into the B plus people, you know you're going to give the same content that you gave to the A plus people, but the B plus people will never implement it because they're just too stuck in their ways. They they, they see comfort as opposed to excellence. And then when you go into the D plus Companies they're so dysfunctional, right? Yeah. That yeah. they're just trying to survive. I mean, it's Maslow's hierarchy needs. They can't they can't be self actualizing when they're trying to figure out how to get a drink of
0: water. That's right. Yeah, it's it's interesting. MCTI gets requests from corporations to work with them. And 99.9% of the time we say no. And the reason we say no is for the reasons you just outlined, right? Because and our teams, you know, they want to talk to us, for example, about risk. And what I say to them is you can't really talk about risk without talking about urgency, criticality, and consequence. Mm -hmm. Like if you you don't understand the temporal environment, if you don't understand the consequence or the criticality, I can't actually engage with you because it's just a theoretical kind of conversation. And then secondly, to your point, the team we work on are teams of significance. They're working on significant problems, and they feel that they're working towards something of significance. Each member does. And so if you don't have that, you won't understand the words we're using so that when you go up there and and you say the same words, they just don't understand them. Yeah, but I would,
1: I'm going to push back just a little bit for this, maybe for the intellectual sake here. Yeah. You will find organizations that are desperate to get one tenth of one percent better yeah and those organizations would love to be part of that conversation yeah because if you were a plus and you know this is i really truly remember this i was working with the coaches of the ravens when they won the super Bowl, and it was so fascinating because they were so intellectually engaged in the content that i brought and it was because they were so desperate to get one tenth or one percent better yeah. that they looked at everything as something they could learn from. That was their culture. And John Harbaugh, the the head coach, you know, he created that culture within his organization. So you do find companies that create that kind of culture that have the CEO that is just so unbelievably curious and humble. You know, he's he's passionate and humble. That's the person who's interested in that conversation. That's also the person who knows how to build a high performance team. Yep and the part of the way reason they can be so curious is because they've taken out a lot of the petty dramas from their work world and you know you do that by how you select and who you choose to keep on your team and if you keep the B players and the C players on your team which so many companies do partly because they have these stupid HR practices that allow them to do this but but also partly because There's certain times that people can hold you hostage. If you have this amazing salesperson or this amazing engineer who everybody thinks is the source of all profit, then you let that person, no matter how dysfunctional they are, you let them stay and they just, they hold your organization hostage. So it's really the rare, extremely rare, but thank God they exist, CEOs out there who can be part of the same conversation that a special ops or covert ops team can be part of.
0: I, I agree, and and that's why I said nine nine point nine because I think yeah. my, what i found is that they are very rare and they are often fleeting. meaning that there's a time and a place where they can do that, and then the bureaucracy starts to take over.
1: Oh yeah, hundred percent. I mean <laughs> I, I love Ricky Gervais, who is the you know the, the creator of the office. He yeah. has this org chart and it looks like a pyramid, and at the top of the pyramid, instead of CEO, he wrote the word sociopath. Oh, wow. Yeah, and at the bottom, which would be like all of your front line employees wrote he wrote the word losers. And they're not necessarily social losers. Well, they can be. They're, they're certainly economic losers, right? Yeah. They're the downtrodden. And then the, the bureaucracy he calls the clueless class. And yeah. his theory is that the bigger the organization grows, the bigger the clueless class. So these layers and layers and layers of bureaucracy. And, you know, I've listened to a bunch of your podcasts and you can hear that undertone in a bunch of the podcasts that you've done in the past, yep. where this mid layer of clueless, you know, the clueless class, the bureaucrats yep. come in and just make everything infinitely more difficult.
0: Yeah. There's research on that called the frozen middle, right? Which is, you know, the people on the ground trying to get it done, the bosses with big ideas, and then the frozen middle, they're just trying to keep the train on the tracks, but invariably without intending to often, oh. you know, we assume good actors, and they invariably slow everything down.
1: Yeah, this is a plague upon business in the United States, yeah. and sadly, it's I think MBA programs really push this, and yeah. we push it partly because we assume that our frontline employees are clueless, right? Yeah. Or excuse me, that they're losers, right? And so we create tons of KPIs, like all sorts of metrics that people have to live up to, instead of just inspiring them to do their best work. Yeah, and you know, the, a, a good leader, as you well know. Is able to harness the discretionary energy of yeah. their team yeah. towards a goal. Yeah. That like if you're your average employee in the United States, you know, you're probably putting in like say, let's let's just say you work a 40 hour week. Let's assume that you're really good for those 40 hours, but you're probably not. So what we want is people who wake up at three o'clock in the morning to solve our business problems. Yeah. And when you have those kinds of employees in your company, you're gonna make ridiculous profits.
0: I would love to go down this path, but it's filled with darkness. So I'm going to go in another yes. direction. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the really interesting things I was telling you was we were just talking about sports and MCTI is currently doing some work with some F1 racing companies. And, and the reason for that is simply because they're, we're looking at the role that simulation is playing in the training and developing of elite teams. And F1 is one of the leaders on those simulations. Mm-hmm. And in that research, which is super fascinating one of the things they found out was that because they have so many biometrics on drivers and so many sensors in the car, they can track performance at at a level that almost no other sport can. And so one of the things they found out is that when a driver first gets married or first has a child, you can see it in the data the next day after that child is born, their performance changes. It, it's degraded. They're a little more hesitant. They're a little more thoughtful about the fact that there's another human they have to be in charge of. And and what happens is those drivers either either shift existentially in their head and say, yep, um, that's in the calculus. I still want to be a great driver. Or know what? I'm going to do something else because I want to be around to raise my child. And by the way, this is not pejorative. I'm not saying Mm that one is a good or a better choice, but it is the equation. And so in 2005, you have a daughter. You are a person that lives doing extraordinary and exceptional things at at a great personal risk. How did that calculus go on in your head about those kind of existential sort of changes? I wish
1: I could give you a different answer than I'm going to give you. But the truth is that in 2005, when my wife was pregnant, my partner's wife was also pregnant. And the two of us went to try to climb... K two, which is, at that point was considered the most dangerous mountain in the world, we were trying to climb it alpine style, and we actually were trying to climb two different peaks in the in the in the Karakoram that same way, and it was crazy risky. And that year, nobody summited either of those peaks because the weather was so bad. But man, we made really really bold attempts to try to get to the top of those peaks. So we had an incredibly risky summer. And then after my daughter was born, I went back to K2 in 2007. And when I left home, I left home for 89 days, 89 days door to door. And I remember coming home and my daughter, knew the concept of dad. She was, you know, young enough that, you know, she wasn't even speaking yet. You know, she's walking, but not speaking. And um, she knew the concept of dad, but she didn't remember who I was. And I remember laying on the couch with her, and it took us probably five or six hours to kind of reestablish that bond. But so I do know the pain involved in all of that. But for me, you know, I used to joke around, with my friends. I used to say, my daughter told me when she was born that she doesn't want a dad who's a (laughs) has-been. So I was just, I think my problem, and I really, um, I think I relate to a lot of your community here, is that I am really hardwired. And I used to say the same thing about love. If you fall in love with a chocolate chip cookie and then take the chips out, it's not the same person you fell in love with,. Right. And some of these hardwired ingredients that are inside of me, you know, yeah. this these drives to push myself are, are if you we took these away, I don't know if I would be nearly as good of a father as I am because I do take these risks,
0: yeah, that brings us a little bit to a conversation that that goes throughout our team cast, which is the hero's journey. And the, and the the transition that many of us make between what anthropologists call the ordinary to the extraordinary world, right, or the, the routine to the critical or city to wilderness, right? This idea mm-hmm. that we transition between worlds and people that only live in the ordinary world think they understand what it is to be out there, but they don't. In the same way that I don't know what it is to be on the International Space Station. I've seen movies, but I can't understand it. I don't know the nausea. I don't know what weightlessness is. It's it's foreign to me. And so as a person who's spent their life navigating between these two worlds, how do you go about thinking about that transition?
1: There's a, a bunch of coping mechanisms I think that we all have. Number one is we realize that people can ask us what it's like, and we really start to tell them the fluff, right? Yeah. Oh, the views were amazing. And, you know, I had this fantastic conversation with somebody. And it's because we know that that other person can't understand what it's like and and to try to explain it, you just can't explain it. I'm sure that we've all tried at one point and realized yeah. we were it was it was futile for us, so th- that's important i I think another thing where i I'm really blessed the way I chose to go through this was I was never myopic, you know I was really into building a business, so before the starting of Earth Treks, my company, I was on the cutting edge of Himalayan climbing. I was climbing, you know, these 6,000-meter peaks in pure alpine styles by routes that had never been climbed before. Uh, and it was really, you know, trying to move the sport forward. I was that person. And then I started my business, and I had to push that aside, you know, moving the sport forward, being a pure athlete, and being a business person. And I got so much satisfaction out of building a business. And partly because there's actually a lot of parallels between entrepreneurship and adventure. But, and then eventually I got to the point where the business had been, it was just on a path. It was it was established and it was not going to crash. And I was able to go back to the old world. And I'd go pretty far back into that old world of really being on the cutting edge, trying to move the sport forward. And really, I've tried to stay a little bit, like now I'm the old guy. I'm 59 years old, so I can't participate at the same level. I'm, I'm not moving the sport forward anymore, but I still participate at a super high level. So the analogy was a marathon. I'm not, I'm no longer standing on a podium on Sunday mornings, but I've run as hard and fast as I could all day. And luckily for me, I've enjoyed the running with 26,000 other people, you know, (laughs) a bunch of burrows, what happens to be. So yeah, so I still get tremendous amount of satisfaction. But I think that as I go back and look again, where I was blessed, where some people aren't blessed with that going back and forth, Mm -hmm. Question is, I I had multiple ways to stimulate myself.
0: Yeah, I think you and I have talked about this, but just for our audience, this concept of shibboleth, right, which is this idea, which is the term or the inside language that only we will know. And the best way I've explained to people is how do you put on a frozen boot? and and the only way you'll know this is if you've done it and if you've done it you know that the reason it's frozen is because you were walking through rain the day before which means (laughs) that your socks are wet which means you probably have blood blisters and you tried to dry your socks but it never really works no matter what they tell you and so you have to put wet damp cold socks over sore feet and then shove them into frozen boots to walk them thaw and that's a thing where Whether you're you're a combat veteran or whether you're you or whether you're me, once you've had that experience, it leaves a visceral memory, right? And only people that have done it really understand it. And I think that's part of this transitioning in and out and finding people, regardless of their domain. I'm sure this still happens to you, where people who have nothing to do with mountaineering but share some shibboleth where you immediately are like, Oh, I get it.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And and that's why it's, I mean. (sighs) Just look at the people who end up being your friends. Yeah. And like, okay, they're, why are we attracted to each other? Whatever. I have a ton of special ops friends. And you're like, okay, like I've never been in a in a in a firefight. Yeah. And you know, you've never had your friends wiped out by avalanches, but you know, we both have been through that same experience. Yeah. And I, I think that the one really powerful experiences that we've had is we've been around death multiple times. Yeah. Yep. To the point where death has changed who we are, Yep, uh, and, and especially taught us to be humble. Yes. And the first time I ever had somebody die in my hands, I remember his soul passing through my body. I was giving him CPR, and literally, uh, and, you know, I'm not an extremely religious person, but I could feel his energy, and, and it taught me literally in the second that it wasn't the CPR that mattered right now, it was the love. Yeah. And all I could do was the when we are born, we are surrounded by love. Yeah. We come into this world. I mean, I've you know, if you're in the the, the delivery room, it's just it's so powerful that experience. I always called it the universal miracle, but what it's all about love. And then when you're leaving, I think the last emotion that you should ever feel from the other people who, especially when these traumatic deaths happen. Fear is the likely emotion that they're experiencing, but they have to put that aside and just push love into that person's body. And all of us who've done that and and have, have learned that lesson, that gives us so much humility. And as much as it's cool that you... Jumped out of airplanes and you fought in Afghanistan and you did all this other stuff like that that's just stuff that we've done. It's Definitely. not who we are. We're bigger than that we're We're more complex humans than that and and one of the things that I think we all share is the sense of humility,
0: yeah. I think, uh, honestly, the people in the ordinary world give us credit for the wrong things sometimes. I think they pay attention to the summits and they don't pay attention to the things you're talking about, right? So my social worker, going back to what we first started, one of the last pieces of advice she said to me was, you know, I said, hey, uh, any thoughts before I I leave and we probably won't see each other again? She goes, she just looks at me as I'm walking out the door and she goes, never forget that at the very edge of things, some problems cannot be solved in the absence of love. Wow, and yeah. as long as you and I have known each other, right? Most of our conversations, in honesty, have been around us working with students who are struggling to be better than they think they are, and you and I, in a place of love, are saying, "But we know there's more in there." So, like, how do we get them to see it? And I think that's a, a center line of a lot of the work you and I do.
1: Oh yeah, and that was what I I think really made me a great CEO. Yeah. And as an example. I, I thought that my number one job was to make people happy they worked for the company. And as a result of that, I spent so little time with the admin staff and almost all of my time with the part-time or frontline staff. And I found those, they, they were fascinating. And I also learned not only what it took to be a good employer from them, but I also learned because we're on the front lines, learned what the customer wanted. And as a result of that, we were Experts at at evolving and del- continuing to deliver what the customer, especially the newer customer, wanted. And as a result of that, we were
0: ridiculously profitable. So I'm going to actually swing back on this sorrow, this this loss. Death mm-hmm. question a very different way, which is so you and I met in 89, 90. We continued to see each other throughout the years for various reasons. When I ran my company Adventure Management, you were at Earth Treks. And then you started working with the Wharton School, uh, running expeditions for them with Mike Useen. Mm-hmm. And then in 2007, I got a job running those expeditions. And once again, you and I find each other working together, which was awesome, just amazing small world stuff. And then in 2008, I was getting frustrated because my research at Harvard was theoretical on this idea of starting understanding risk and uncertainty, in which you and I had many yep. conversations. And I'm gonna pause there because it's worth noting that you and I over the years have had many conversations about this concept of risk and uncertainty. And I- I'm just curious, as you have now continued to evolve, if you're if you're thinking on risk and uncertainty has evolved.
1: You know, I had a really intense fall, actually, maybe since the beginning of the summer. And there's these 14 8,000-meter peaks, the tallest peaks in the world. And I became the second American to summit all 14, but it was a 24-year journey. yeah And I went on 28 different expeditions to try to just get 14 summits. So I failed 50% of the time. The week after I succeeded and came back to the United States... I woke up on a Saturday morning and my phone was blowing up, yeah. and it was like five o'clock in the morning. And I looked at it; and it was twenty-five plus messages from Nepal, and some really good friends of mine were on a peak called Shishapangma, which is the fourteenth tallest eight thousand meter peak. And they were on their fourteenth eight thousand meter peaks, so they were about to finish their their, their journey. But four of them were killed in a, in a in two separate avalanches, actually. And it, the reason I was getting all of these. Calls was because nobody had the contact information for one of these women's family in the U.S., yeah. and it became my task to hunt down the family and to deliver the news that their forty-something-year-old daughter had died. And this was a family that had no experience in the mountains. You know, their daughter did, but they this was a, such a foreign world for them. So it became this is a gift to yeah. be able to be with this family for this weekend and really try to help them understand and just navigate this you know, completely foreign world and obviously this horrendous tragedy. So has my appreciation for risk changed? My understanding of the consequence has become stronger through lots of personal experience, but I don't think it has changed. And the reason I say that is because not only have I survived those 28 expeditions, but I've never lost a partner. And the reason I failed so many times is because I think I was really good at assessing the dangers and knowing when to turn around. And five of those turnarounds, five of those failures were to save the lives of other people who had something terrible had happened to them. They had overextended themselves in some way. And so five of them, I was rescuing people and two times they died on me. But yep. we gave our best. In fact, maybe we gave better service during the deaths than we did during the the live evacuations. But somewhere along the line, it was impressed upon me that your job is to manage risk. And the way that we manage risk is certainly through education and experience, right? Because they really go hand in hand. But no, I, I, I used to, when I would, I guided Everest through different times. And we used to teach people that there was 19 ways that you can die on the way to the summit. And that was because we as a group had listed every possible way we could think of that somebody had died. Yeah. And it ended up that we came up with 19 different ways. And when you look at the statistics, and this is this is a truth that st- stays today. The top four reasons why people die on Mount Everest is because of human error. Yeah. So the, the mountains don't kill you. You kill yourselves on the mountains. Yes, there are st- some small portion of people who are killed by the mountains, an avalanche that starts, you know, 6,000 feet above their head or something like that. But yeah. it's human error. I mean, people overestimate their abilities. They, they fail to process the data that's unfolding in front of them. They misjudge the technical nature of the terrain they're on. You know, they didn't bring the right tools and equipment, whatever yeah. it happens to be. So...
0: So this is a conversation you and our friend, uh, Rodrigo Hordan, have had a few times. And 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 I'm actually a little embarrassed that I'm about to ask this question because I actually don't understand it. But I know this conversation comes up, which is, there you are invested all this time, you're going to go to a summit, and then people you've never met, knows nothing to do with you, have a bad day. And you choose to alter your destiny to support them when others would say, nope, they made their choice, this is their fate. So I guess my question, even though I, I don't understand it, um, why would you support them rather than continuing on to the summit?
1: I think at sea level, the answer is obvious. Yeah. Right? Why would you step over a dying body to reach your goal? Yeah. And it really pisses me off, Preston. And we had a, a, another example this summer Every two or three years, this example unfolds itself on Everest. But this summer on K2, I happened to be in K2 base camp when this is unfolding. I was climbing the peak across the valley. But a large group, like 150 people, went to the summit in a snowstorm, which is so stupid. And one a Pakistani climber, he fell about three-quarters of the way up, and he was dangling from a rope. they were able to pull him back up. I'm not exactly sure what happened because there's never been an autopsy. I performed on his body as far as I know. But the, the reality is of the 150 people there with a, with an injured person, the choice was made not to evacuate the injured person who maybe would have died during the evacuation. The choice was made by 149 people to go to the summit. And that breaks my heart. Because the summit is just a patch of snow and you can come back. I mean, I, I was on K2 three times before I summited and each of those times I was there, each of those expeditions, we made multiple attempts. So maybe I made six or seven attempts to go to the summit of K2 before I finally got there. I always knew I was strong enough. I had the, you know, the, the, the emotional fortitude, whatever to come back and try again. So as much as, might have pissed me off that I didn't, that I had to turn around for that person. It, it never occurred to me not to turn around. Yeah. There is a, I apologize for not remembering his name, but he was a, a Holocaust survivor who became a psychologist. Victor Frankel. Stu- no, not Frankel. was a oh. different guy. Yeah. But he he studied altruism because okay. in the concentration camps, there were so many acts of kindness that he saw people do, like little moments of caring. And altruism differs from heroism. I mean, as we think of it, I mean, heroism in my mind is you've literally risked your life to try to make the situation better. Altruism is, yeah, I might have, I might accept a little bit of discomfort. And what he found was he was wondering why some people were altruistic and others weren't. And he found that it happens, it comes down to, do you believe that you could make the situation better? And so if I'm driving down the highway and I see an old woman with a flat tire, I am absolutely, if I'm going 75 miles an hour, I have a second to make a decision. I'm pulling over because I can change a flat tire and I could also emotionally comfort this woman, right? If I saw a guy in a Harley Davidson, with, you know, a broken down motorcycle and, you know, he was covered in tattoos and everything. I'm not going to stop for that guy because he doesn't need my emotional comforting and I do not know how to fix his motorcycle. So two different reactions, all based upon, can I make the situation better? And I think that what happens for a lot of the people who don't stop and help, who step over the dying person, they actually realize that they can't make the situation any better. Yeah, Like, they don't have the skill. And that's terrible that you're up there without those skills.
0: Yeah, agreed. So this brings us in relationship, and we're gonna come back to some of these themes, but it brings us to about 2008. And so 2008, I was working at the Wharton School. I was frustrated in my work at Harvard, looking at risk and uncertainty. And I finally decided... Because I was having all these conversations with people in the FBI and Secret Service and Special Operations, and it surprised me how similar we all were in our way of seeing the world. And so I organized a dinner at the White Dog Cafe, of which you were there. And who was there was a, an F-35, an F-16 pilot, an Olympic athlete, Secret Service agent, and Vikram Bakru, who was, at the time, one of the leading pediatric surgeons worldwide. And I I was asking the group a series of questions that would lead to the creation of my research, which would lead to the creation of Mission Critical Team Initiative at Wharton that became the Mission Critical Team Institute. And my question to you among many was, Chris, when did you know that you had changed from being an amateur mountaineer to a professional mountaineer and your answer was when I changed my relationship with pain and I'm going to in a second ask you to talk about that but what I wanted to tell the audience was the surprising follow-up because as soon as you said that who he's sitting next to you was Vikram Bakram and Vikram said oh yeah absolutely true for me as well and all of us turned and we're like how is that true for a guy inside of a building and he goes because if I do three heart surgeries on children, and the first child dies, I can't compartmentalize that pain and still be a hundred percent available to the second patient. I have to actually mourn that first child in real time. I have to acknowledge a loss has happened, right? And so, I want to bring you back, sort of, that time, or even now. And and you know, we were talking about sorrow a little while ago, and pain, and pain comes both at the time you were speaking about physical pain, but I think as I've gotten to know you, that's also true for this emotional existential pain.
1: Yeah, I don't think you are, truly can call yourself a climber until you understand the consequence of the sport. And the consequence of the sport is that you can die. Yeah, And we don't really get that until somebody close to us has died or we've come really close to dying ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. The I, physical pain, I think, is just... I think it's a lot easier to understand. I mean, it's just like any endurance athlete. You, you know, you have to go through the pain cave as part of the, you know, the journey between the starting line and the finish line.
0: Have you found as you've gotten older, has your relationship with sorrow changed?
1: Oh yeah. And I think a lot of mountaineering deaths are really ugly. Yeah. They are extremely traumatic. I watched a man fall 5,000 feet and bounce his way down K-2, and myself and the other guy who was Lieutenant Colonel... Retired from the US Marine, Rod Richardson. If any of your listeners know Rod, he was probably the greatest warrior of, of, our, jan- of our lifetime. Two tours of duty in Vietnam. He'd been shot t- four times in the back in Lebanon. He was in every single firefight except for Granada. He left the K-2 expedition to become Hamid Karzai's head of security. He oversaw the Uday and Use Hussein firefight. He ran a Blackwater's army in El Ambar and then switched to Fortress Group and was sadly killed by. Al-Qaeda at a checkpoint outside of Baghdad. And when he was killed, he was the Marines, even though he wasn't he was a former Marine at that point, they they leapt to go and get his body and fly him back with honors back to the United States. So he was such a gift. But it was he and I who went to this body who was completely traumatized. And you know, his 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 hips were pulverized, so his legs were up on you know, behind his head and the back of his skull have been crushed in. And I mean, you know, like those traumatic deaths and just the accumulation of deaths, I think we we are all dealing with some level of PTSD. So does sorrow hit me stronger now? Absolutely. I am more emotional than I was when I was younger. You know, and this is something else a lot of your guys or people will relate to. When I had to call that family and tell them that their daughter was dead. I mean, you know the words you're going to say, and they answer, and you're trying to say them. And the tidal wave of emotion.
0: Yeah.
1: It's as you're trying, these words are trying to come out. I bawled crying that morning.
0: Yeah. We recently, some folks might know, i just a few months, uh, not a few months, a few weeks ago, uh, lost my brother-in-law. And when I went to spend the week with the family and their kids, you know, I sat them down and I said, hey, look, a couple of things before we spend the week together. And one of them is grief has its own rules. And so you can't evaluate your performance based on normal worlds. Whatever you say, think, act, whatever, I'm here. It's all good. Don't worry about it. The second thing is grief comes in waves. They're big in the beginning and then they get smaller, but you need a swim buddy. And so we're here to be your swim buddy while the big waves hit you. And I think more and more, those kind of simple sort of rules are really helpful in those moments that we've had dealing with things like that. Yeah. Yeah. I always tell people, we cry early and often. Yeah. In this conversation, you've mentioned partnerships quite a bit. And I know that that Mountaineers are sort of famous for their partnerships. And I think back to the early days of being on a guide team. And in the years that I've known you being on a guide team and partnering with you for learning and doing other things, how do you think about what makes a great partnership in your world? Trust and caring. Yeah.
1: And these are universal
0: like yeah. a partnership is is
1: dependent on trust and caring and it's such a strong word to me that it actually was one of the core values of my company and you know we thought a partnership is not just how we interact with each other as employees but with customers but with vendors etc but yeah and and it is amazing how again going back to business how poorly A lot of businesses do at this concept of partnership. Yeah. And they say that only 50% of employees in the United States trust their direct supervisor. Yeah. Yeah. And caring, caring is a thousand little acts of kindness. And they, they say that the number one predictor of future success for a team is do
0: they care about each other? Yeah. It's one of those things that the thing that you also make me think of in addition to that is for my friends like you in special operations or folks like yourself. What's interesting about those friendships is usually those people have some form of controversy associated with them some version of disruption like they they don't get along they don't they're not they're sometimes can be prickly they sometimes can be all over the map and it's this 5% sort of juvenile delinquency latency effect which is you always know that like they may not wear pants today or some other <laughs> weird thing is going to happen right but yet if you know if you trust their intent if you trust their caring, it doesn't matter. If it's not out of like, you know, substance abuse or mental health, if it's just them being them, then you can tolerate it all day long. In fact, not only tolerate it, but sort of look forward to it. Oh, 100%.
1: Yeah, no, no, this is, uh, you know, they trust, right? As a leader, you have to give trust and then earn trust. Yeah, But you have to start by giving trust to everybody because you're trying to create that trusting environment with everybody. And 100% because there is going to be this is, you know, look, I had employees for 25 years yeah. that we worked, you know, side by side with each other. You do realize as like the CEO or the leader that you're really never going to truly be we're never going to be best friends. Yeah. We we we're, we're super friendly so that's be, but because we're going to have to do things that disappoint or anger or frustrate or yeah. whatever it is, the other people. And you get through that because of the trust that you have for each other. Yeah.
0: And and part of that, and I know from my own personal experience, as we continue to try to pull off the next big problem, we get after the next big interesting thing, and we try to support the next team that's going after the impossible thing. There are people in our lives that will get off the bus for a variety of reasons that friends Mm -hmm. that I have had, which I will lose touch with for, for not because they're bad, it's because they choose a different path. They decide to become a mom or a dad, or they decide to get a job nine to five, or because they have their own personal issues that don't allow them to keep pace. Basically, and and people will say, "Well, why aren't you sort of stay, staying back to look after them?" And I was like, "That's not my that's not my role. Like, I can support them, but I still I have to continue going down this path." And so when you think about the people that you've known over the years and the folks that you've necessarily had to say goodbye to, how, how do you think about that now?
1: Uh Well, I guess it kind of depends on why you said goodbye to them. Right. Right. Sometimes you say goodbye because there's been a massive value clash, but other times, like you said, it's just because their life took them in a different direction. And, I think for a lot of it, like just like this conversation, like we haven't seen each other in years, Yeah, but we can go right back to enjoying our time with each other. And I'd say the majority of the people I haven't seen in a long time, we just go right back to that point. And part of it is because one of the reasons we've become friends is because we knew we never, we always knew we were independent actors. Yeah. Right. And that's what we were respecting each other. So just going back to trust, like when I think about this question is, my greatest flaw, and my greatest weak and strength, is the same thing that I trust everybody. Yeah. And so the people who've really have had the biggest values clash were with were people that did something that just destroyed my trust in them. But that has never, and sometimes that's cost me millions of dollars. But that has never stopped me from wanting to trust people because ninety nine point nine percent of the time trust is paid off in spades for me. Yeah,
0: I agree with that. One hundred percent. So I'm um, now, as we start to close this out, I'm going to, I'm going to start just telling stories, right? Okay. <laughs> and, and there's a couple of, of fun stories that you and I involved in. And the first one, they're not in sequence, but the first one it made me think of was one day um, when I was at Wharton, a couple of things were going on while I was at Wharton and I was there from about 2007 to about 2017, about 10 years. And one of the things that was happening was there was a generation of women coming from Asia, the Middle East, Latin America, that was the first generation of women that would come and get their. MBA and go back to work in a male patriarchy, family-owned company. And that created these really interesting dynamics from time to time. And one day, I was in my office, and we were getting ready for you to lead a group of students to Cotopoxy. There's two Cotopoxy stories we'll tell. And this one woman comes in and goes, hey, Preston, I just want to talk to you. My name is so-and-so. I'm from Columbia, I think it was, or the Middle East. And I'm I'm signed up to go to Cotopoxy. And I was like, fantastic. She's like, you cannot tell my family. And I was like, well, you're an adult. You're 28. I'm <laughs> I, I'm not allowed to tell your family. And, and but can I can ask why, because if they find out that I'm doing something like this without their permission, they'll pull me out of school. And I was like, okay. And I call you and I tell you this and you're like, wow, this is great. And then you and I, it's graduation day mm-hmm. and we're walking in the hallways of Wharton. And as we were talking about this young lady and we we're walking, their parents they turn the corner and they're headed right at us. And just like juvenile delinquents, we quick look for the exits to like <laughs> avoid the whole situation. But she waves us down. I don't know if you remember this. They didn't speak English. And they walked up to us and she, trembling voice, goes, Mom and Dad, I want to introduce you to Preston and Chris. And I want to tell you a story. Do you remember this? I do
1: remember this. I remember exactly who you're talking about. And do you yeah. remember the I actually look- remember where we were standing.
0: Yeah. yeah. Do you remember the look on Dad's face? As the story in a foreign language, we didn't know what she was saying, but the look on their parents' faces as the whole story came out, both you and I were not exactly sure what was going to happen next. I
1: remember hugging her mother,
0: so I guess it worked out well. It did. It worked out fine. Yeah, It was one of those moments where the look of horror, of fear, Uh of anxiety, and finally of pride— on their faces as her daughter recounts that she summited a mountain with you and mm-hmm. and like there was this and the dad the body language of the dad was like all over the map but finally at the end he looked down and looked up and shook your hand yeah <laughs> yeah definitely remember the mom yeah, yeah. we, we so did good was, work preston yeah that was good work here's the other one do you remember Shilpi? So um, I, I tell, yeah, didn't she go to work for Google? I think so. She's probably yeah. a huge deal. She probably yes, runs yes, some country yes. right now. Yeah. So Shelby, this is a true story, everybody. So Shelpi comes to Wharton and we mistakenly asked the following question in our application to become a venture fellow. So the people that would partner with guys like Chris to lead the MBAs up these mountains. And we asked this question, have you spent much time above, I think we said six or 8,000 feet? And she wrote, oh yeah, all the time. Well, she grew up in Darjeeling, India, like her backyard, I think was at 6,000 feet. Mm -hmm. So like when they would do summer picnics, they would go up into the mountains and have a summer picnic. When she came to our staff training in New Jersey, once again, Chris and I were, we did this gear check. So we get everybody to get there. They had a gear list and they lay out their gear and we walk up to Shilpi and we say, Shilpi, how's it going? She was like, great. And she had laid everything out with new, some had tags on it. Everything was there. And she's like, are you going to show me how to use all this? And Chris and I look at each other like, "I'm sorry, what?" Because she had been slated to partner with a guy named Patrick to lead students up Cotopaxi. And you look at me and go, "We're gonna. This is not gonna work. We can't take somebody who's never been camping before up Cotopaxi." And I was like, well, "Hold on, hold on. Let's give this some thought." So her partner named Patrick was like six foot four, yep. 250 pounds, helicopter pilot, probably had saved America. West Point graduate. Yeah, West Point graduate. Right. And we're like, "Well, look." If worst comes to worse, Patrick will just put Shopee in his backpack. <laughs> she wasn't a very big girl, and he'll just carry up the mountain. And so we're like, okay. And then, literally a week before, or like a couple of days before you're leaving for Ecuador, Patrick's mom passes away, and Patrick can't go on the trip. And so it's just Shopee. And that are you? Are this coming back to you? Yeah, yeah. And so we now you should need to know something we had never successfully gotten 100% of the people to the summit prior to that and all the courses we had run. And Shopi, be, because she's an amazing human. And this is the story I've heard. I wasn't there. So if I get this wrong, you tell me, but it's a legend now. Or do you know that you want to tell this part of her speech in front of all the students? No, you tell it. So she gets up in front of the students and this is like a masterclass in leadership. And she goes, ladies and gentlemen, before we begin, I want to let you know, she had all the students together. She asked to meet with them. And she goes, now you all know that we've never, Wharton has never achieved 100% of people to summit. And they're like, yeah. And she's like, but I believe we could do it this time. And they're like, we believe it too. And she's like pacing up in front of them like MacArthur. And she was like, but you'd think about what that means. What that means is we're going to have to take the least experienced, least talented person up this mountain and they're like, we can do it. She's like, no, you don't understand. There might be people on this program right now who literally maybe have two days of backpacking have never been on a mountain before. And they're like, we can do it. And she like gets them so amped up that they could pull this off that she goes, great. Cause I'm that person. And that year we got a hundred percent of the people up the summit.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It was amazing that that whole goal, it was the mission of the program was to teach leadership. Yeah. And we had to come up with an improbable goal yeah. to solicit changes in behaviors. Yeah. If the goal was easy, if it had been 100% at 100% of the times, nobody would have had to change their behavior to be able to uh, achieve the goal. Yeah. And so I think in the end, 10% of the Wharton groups that we had on Code Epoxy achieved the goal. Yeah. Everybody learned a tremendous amount about leadership. Yeah. Even teams at 100% failure rate yeah. learned a ton. But it was because the goal itself was so unbelievably improbable, so difficult, that the whole project worked.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that story is still told. And every once in a while, I hear from Shilpi. I think she's running a government right now or something. Yes. She's, yeah. she's sort of amazing. So now, as we, as we start to close this out, Chris, it, I want to sort of do this. Many of the things that I think about with MCTI, many of the original ideas around teamwork, around uncertainty, about challenge and, and adversity were formed in New Jersey, being cold, wet, tired, and hungry with yep. kids that didn't want to be there. And I think when you're when you're climbing 14,000-foot peaks, are there still lessons that you learned back then that, that you still use now?
1: Oh, 100%. And I'll tell you the most important one. This organization, Project use was run by a guy named Phil Costello. And he used to always say, there's nothing as contagious as enthusiasm. Yeah. And I have changed that a little bit to there's nothing as contagious as emotions. Yeah. And absolutely, the emotions of the team will make or break a team. Yeah, And in those tight environments, I mean, this is something, you know, I did a lot of work with the Office of Director of National Intelligence. We were training analysts to go to forward operating bases. So taking people out of CIA cubicles and sending them to Afghanistan and stuff. And the number one thing we tried to teach him was, was this. The attitude that you bring is going to determine whether you're accepted in, into this community or not. And the whole thing, of course, is for you to go in there and to be of service to these other people, you know, not a a source of drama. And so it's all about your attitude. And I've had many, many times I've had to pull people aside and say, your attitude is, is destroying the group. So, yeah kind of like that endurance athlete kind of thing, which, uh, you know, so many of members of your community going to relate to. It's really when mm-hmm. the things get worse, like, you know, when it, the shit hits the fan, that we actually become the happiest yeah. because we just, we love it. We love being tested. And that emotion that we bring in the moment is contagious to all the other people around us, yep. which is why the team ultimately ends up becoming or will be successful is because of the attitude. If you have one negative person, and this is so true, in fact, it's great to, the statistics on cynics are that they die younger, they get less promotions in the course of their career, they have less friends, and they make less money. So there's no value in being cynical, right? Whereas the statistics on happy people, they're 12% more productive than their peers. They make more money in the course of their career, they have larger groups of friends, and they have overall higher life satisfaction. So it's emotions. Emotion, there's nothing as contagious as emotions. And yeah. I learned that from Phil Costello in the woods of New Jersey.
0: Yeah. As we think about the audience and you think about your experiences, we always like to ask people is if you could give people advice to start Monday on on sort of the things that are just critical for you when you're starting a business or you're starting an expedition, what are the kinds of things you would get them to focus on Monday? Okay, we can make people dysfunctional.
1: Yeah. Everybody showed up on Monday wanting to do their best work. And are we taking care of their psychological needs to allow them to be the highest functioning version of themselves? So if I was going back to work on Monday, I would make this chart. And on this chart, I would list the names of all my direct reports. And on the top, I would list the six psychological needs that somebody has as a member of a team. And they are respect recognition, meaning, autonomy, personal growth, and belonging. And if we actively, this is one of the things I love about the work that you're doing. You, You take people who are intuitively great at their work and you help them become intellectually great at their work. And the reason that you need to go from being intuitive to intellectual is the same reason you need to go from being the athlete to the coach. You cannot scale your operations, right? You can't Teach the next generations how to lead if you're just doing it by being intuitively great. Because intuitively great people are successful 80% of the time, 90% of the time. But if you want to be successful 95% of the time, you need to be intellectually great. You have to study what you do that makes a difference. And that's why, you know, we go to all these training classes. That's why we read all these books, et cetera, is to try to create or find the words that describe the ingredients that make us excellent. And once we understand the ingredients, that's when we can teach the next generation how to be great as well. And 100% learning and and consciously checklisting, am I meeting people's six psychological needs, will keep people from becoming dysfunctional. And you see this all the time. You see high performers step into a new community and they become low performers, right? They become disenchanted because somebody's not meeting one of their six psychological needs. And every one of us as a leader has had somebody in our team that for some reason we didn't click with, and as a result of not clicking with them, we did not meet their their six psychological needs. And as as a result, we took somebody and made them dysfunctional. And those people on the borderline we pull them back into high performance by taking care of the six, you know, making sure we're taking care of the six psychological needs.
0: It's, it's really interesting because I am, I'm constantly in these conversations with, and I'll pick on the military for a second, where military folks, especially NCOs have a culture of whining, right? And they get into leadership or they get these high performance teams and I have to turn to them and go, do you understand that culture of complaining is you're vocalizing that you're a victim. Do you know that? (gasps) And they're like, what? And I'm like, yeah, because what you're saying is you can't, you see a problem and you can't fix it, except everybody working for you is sort of depending on you to fix it. And so this idea of, and and why I'm bringing this up, Chris, is because one of the things that breaks my heart is we have a generation of people that are like kids today. And I'm like, no, it's your job as an elder in this community to raise the kids today. Like you can't write them off. That's not your job. And so this idea that you have of being in service to their development, which will be in service to your larger goals makes utter sense but it's often lost in people that are too easy to dismiss others
1: yeah and the fact is you're never going to go into an environment where there are no problems so why would you like <laughs> you still got to be successful yeah it's like why are you focusing on the problems as opposed to focusing on the opportunities you know like, yeah. your strength you're oh, you're only focused on the weakness instead of the strength come
0: on Yeah. yeah So before we close, are there any last thoughts from this extraordinary conversation? I'm so grateful you you agreed to any last thoughts for our audience.
1: Yes. And it really is this concept of you need to be a product of your product. And too often, especially as we ascend in responsibility, we stop losing touch with what happens on the front lines. And really the the more senior you are, really the more time you should be spending on the front lines. The closer to the customer, the closer to the to the people who are operating there so that you could truly better understand them and that they they know you're a product of their of the
0: product yeah. that's awesome. I literally could talk to you for three more hours, but I want to be respectful of your time and those of our listeners. So I want to just thank you again for coming on the teamcast, and um I look forward to whatever shenanigans we get up to next. Thanks, Chris. Thank you again for listening to our team cast. For more information about the Mission Critical Team Institute, please go to www.missioncti.com or follow us on LinkedIn or Instagram. If you are a mission critical team that wants more information on our courses, please reach out to our Director of Operations, Janice Jackson, at janice at missioncti.com. That's J A N E S E at missioncti.com. And once again, thank you, Janice, and thank you to Shelby Row Productions for helping us produce the team cast. Have a great day.